Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. Hi and welcome to the Exploring Hydrogen podcast. As a brief introduction of our guest today, Professor Peter Ashworth is a globally recognised expert in the fields of energy, communication and stakeholder engagement. For almost two decades, Peter has been researching public attitudes towards climate and energy technologies, including wind, carbon capture and storage, solar photovoltaic and geothermal. Peter, a very warm welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And your roles at the moment, Director of the Andrew Laveris Academy for Innovation and Leadership, Chair in Sustainable Energy Futures at the University of Queensland, and Chair of the Queensland Hydrogen Task Force. And I believe you've also got two daughters, so no doubt there's a fair amount of mumming in there as well. Fairly hectic, that's for sure. Firstly, how do you fit it all in? Um, I think there's some fairly long days and weekends don't always become weekends, much to my daughter's chagrin. She's always telling me, Mum, you've got to stop working so hard. But um, I think that's the challenge of research is that you never actually stop because there's always something else to read, I guess. But you've got to love what you do, I think, and that's what makes the difference. So it's not really like a chore because you're learning all the time and meeting new people and hopefully making a difference. Oh, Absolutely. So your three roles at the moment, do you mind giving us an outline of what those organisations do and what the commonalities are between the organisations? Sure. So my substantive role now is Director of the Andrew Liveris Academy and Andrew Liveris is a UQ alumnus. He was a chemical engineer and became very famous as chairman of Dow Chemical and he decided he made a very generous donation, he and his wife Paula, because he wanted to develop leaders of the future, feeling that the leaders were not really sort of functioning and we needed new institutions. So my role there is to work with super smart, wonderful, high achieving students from across the university, not just engineers, to really hopefully, you know, develop them on a path to be the next global talent pool. So that's a really fun part of the, all of it's fun. Then in Chair in Sustainable Energy Futures, I did used to have responsibility for the Master of Sustainable Energy, but I've now handed that on to my colleague, Tony Hainan. My research is now predominantly around working for the Future Fuels CRC and social licence to operate issues for hydrogen. I'm also looking at some interesting stuff on bioclay. You know, the interaction there, my background is I'm very interested in the integration of science and technology in society. And I guess that's also the innovation lens that goes with the academy. And chair in Hydrogen Task Force, well, that's all about how do we help push along the hydrogen opportunities. And so that links in some ways directly to the research that I'm doing, but also my background. I've chaired several different government areas and participated in the um, Hydrogen Task Force. Fantastic. Yeah. So how often are the Hydrogen Task Force meeting? So it varies. Obviously, I think we're the first six months was quite more frequent, once a month as we were trying to get our you know, heads around what is it and where is it at. But I think now we're sort of getting into a lockstep that it's probably every every couple of months. We've just had one last week. We'll have another one in November and then I think we'll break for over the Christmas period, dare I say it. It's coming around quickly. Yes, yes. Christmas will be upon us before we know it, won't it? 
Yes, absolutely. And what are some of the things that you're working on at the moment for the task force? So there's a whole range of things. What we did was in May, we presented to the the majority of the ministers around some of the focus areas and there were some questions there. So obviously, you know, we're thinking about what is the, you know, the potential opportunity for export, but how do you aggregate demand? What's the position on carbon capture and storage? What are the commercial models that could be helpful to facilitate the industry? What are the necessary regulations? And obviously the precincts are also a really critical part. So with that, it's all the overlay of everything that will feed into developing a hydrogen industry. Obviously, you need renewable energy, the water, the pipelines, is it transmission lines? There's a lot of questions still, I think, that we're working. And then we also did some state uh, industry consultations. So we sort of met with a lot of people that are interested, all a range of, of stakeholders just to understand their viewpoints and their aspirations. Yes, yeah, because this industry is so early on, a lot of the things that you, you mentioned there were also covering in the H2Q, the hydrogen industry cluster. So, yeah, and I think the first time that you and I met, we were down in, in Sydney and you were presenting at the um, Renewable Energy Conference down there. This was probably March time before Sydney got put in uh, that period of lockdown. And I remember some of the things that you were speaking about. You were talking about the public perceptions of, of hydrogen and you mentioned it's all about the trust and, and building the trust. So, for example, where are we going to put the projects? I remember you talking about, you spoke about the, the water challenges, so where the water is going to be coming from. And you also spoke about in detail about the social identity and when you went on to social identity you could feel the energy in the, in the room change and and I think it was after a number of very technical talks so people's ears started to, to prick up and perhaps it was an area that not many people had thought about prior to that so do you mind just giving us an overview of, of what you mean by by social identity? Sure. And I've been very fortunate to work with some social psychologists who were sort of working in that area for a long time. All of us have different groups that we identify with, whether it's a sporting group, a faith group, or also the groups where we work. And so what I talked about was when we start to expand, if we're successful in the amount of renewable energy that we're going to need to cover parts of Queensland and let's hope that it's on more marginal land so that then it can coexist nicely with agriculture. But even so, in some of this marginal land, there will be, you know, what I talked about then was, you know, cattle farmers, maybe fourth generation cattle farmers. So their whole identity is that I'm a farmer, I'm an agricultural producer, I produce beef. And suddenly, you know, they're going to be having people knocking on the door and say, no, actually, we want to use all this land for large-scale soil. And it is already happening. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the challenge that that will entail. I remember a few years ago, there was a report that was done around the potential for running river hydro and things. I think it was ANU. and Or no, it was actually a CSRO one that talked about carbon sequestration with trees and tree planting. But at no stage did they actually look at that interaction with existing farming land and actually talking to those people. So I think it's really about conversations and there's a lot of opportunity, which I think is where all of the state governments are really excited for what that could bring to regional communities. But I think we've just got to be very sensitive to how we manage any movement or transformation in some of these areas. What would you say are the current public perceptions of of hydrogen and of, of the sector And you and I have both been involved in this sector for uh, a good couple of years. And from my personal experience, it seems the conversation early on um, was about the the safety concerns about hydrogen and 
the number of times people brought up the you know Hindenburg disaster, it was a um, a common occurrence in a lot of those early conversations. Seems like we've kind of moved beyond that. Uh, so, are you, are you still hearing about the safety concerns, and what are the other concerns that people are sort of relaying to you? I would wonder if the Hindenburg comment came from people that were older, because I found in our research that actually it wasn't such a frequently occurring. You know, some would mention hydrogen bomb and Hindenburg, but it tended to be more age specific. It wasn't something when you ask people, and we did it in our survey recently, most of them remember it from chemistry, you know, the first element in the chemistry table and all of these sorts of things. But safety is still a concern when we ask people to rank different issues. So I think we did some early work funded by ARENA in 2018, which informed our survey. So we did focus groups first, and safety came up along with a whole list of other things. And we know from social license to operate parameters is that as if they know that there's regulations in place to manage environmental impacts and obviously safety to you know human element and and so forth then it's more likely to have a social license to operate when it comes to public attitudes i still would imagine that most people don't really think about a hydrogen project unless they're in an area where perhaps, you know, there's a project being mooted, I guess Gladstone and Townsville. But again, possibly only if you're in more of the industry side of things. You know, I I don't think lay public would have sort of in-depth knowledge of it. But what we found is when we actually took them through, say, in our national survey, we actually gave them pieces of information, showed them a video and those sorts of things. And as they became more familiar with it, we did see that they became quite positive. I think Alan Finkel, former chief scientist, talked about the cautiously optimistic, which I think is a really nice term because of the benefits that they perceive that hydrogen might bring if it you know, can be achieved at scale, but only as long as the environmental impacts are minimised and safety and those sorts of things. I think that's really important. We did find, interestingly, when we did an analysis, and I might have talked about that, that there was bipartisan support, and I think that's quite exciting for an energy technology because it doesn't always happen that way. So that's also, I think, encouraging for governments that we can actually get something that everyone can buy into. Yes, yeah. This is the very first episode of the Exploring Hydrogen podcast series, so we're going to get a number of or quite a broad range of listeners from technology experts through to people that might be hearing about hydrogen for the very first time. So perhaps we can take a step back and firstly talk about what is hydrogen energy? Okay, so hydrogen, you know, as I think we've already talked about, is one of the most abundant elements in the universe. It is quite volatile, so you don't tend to find that, you always tend to see it as a compound, H2, so H2O, CH4 and those sorts of things, and hence that's what part of the process is, is is actually moving it back. But as an energy carrier, it has a very high energy density. So that's really positive, I think, for what it can do. Probably, I think it's about nearly 2.4 times as much as natural gas. And it also can be used for both heat or as electricity using fuel cells. So I think that actually opens up a whole lot of opportunities, which is why it's so exciting for us. So the idea is now is that, you know, if electrons are too expensive, you might be able to move it through pipelines and so forth, but also as storage so that helping, you know, so you produce it if we if in the perfect green hydrogen produced um, when renewable electricity is being generated, there's large amounts. So, you know, and almost the price goes almost to a zero or negative. So therefore, it's very cheap then to think about producing the hydrogen. And it because it can be stored if, for well, say, perchance, we're strongly relied on renewable energy, we could actually pull that back in to help sort of 
firm at different times if we needed, you know, to fix that variability that can be challenging with renewables. So we'll have batteries as well. But, you know, if for chance there was, you know, it was several days, the sun didn't shine, the wind didn't blow, then actually hydrogen gives us a longer term option for storage, which I think is quite exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So hydrogen is a, is a vector. So it's a means for energy so- storage and a means for transportation. And perhaps we can talk about where you see hydrogen fitting into the energy mix as we move towards a, a decarbonized society. What do you see as the position of hydrogen versus uh, battery and, and the other methods for uh, energy storage and transportation? So I'd start by saying it will be like context will matter. It will be different for depending where you are and what you're trying to achieve from the use of it. I think, as I said, the beauty of hydrogen is that it allows us to capitalise on when we've got large renewable energy generation, I suppose. One of the areas that I think when we talked about in the task force was the opportunity for long-haul transport could be a real game changer and especially when we're looking in Queensland and other places for mining operations. So if you could convert some of the OEM type um, heavy vehicles into hydrogen, I think that would really reduce the amount of CO2 emissions, which would be really exciting in that way. They've talked about fleet vehicles, but at the moment, you know, that's still probably, that would be probably where you'd see them because we have such an existing electricity grid probably battery EVs would still be for most of the consumers. I'd say the hydrogen vehicles are a little bit further away for domestic use. But for public transport, I think is another opportunity. When we talk about safety, one of the things that people talked about was actually demonstrating hydrogen in buses and trains could actually help to build the confidence for it more broadly. And then, of course, export. I mean, that's the sort of long challenge or the golden casket, I guess, isn't it, if we can sort out how we can use it. So therefore then looking at shipping is another interesting, you know, and use of ammonia. So there's a whole range of different things there that I think come into play. So what, why now? Why is hydrogen gaining such momentum? I mean, the technology has been around, been around for many years and there was research into hydrogen vehicles and I think the 80s and, and 90s, which was a bit of a false start. So what has changed? You know, it's a good question. And in actual fact, there was an EU-funded project where they trialled, I think it was four or five buses in Perth in 2004. So it is, it's not new. And then we've got places like the Yarra up in Pilbara, the Norwegian have been producing ammonia and so forth. And, you know, it's used in rockets and a few other things as well. So why now? I think the big thing is this idea that we can produce green green hydrogen, like low emission hydrogen. So the two ways we talked about is obviously with renewable energy and electrolysis or in some cases converting fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage. Now, you know, but I think the big thing is with Paris being so important, like the Paris Agreement and the need to decarbonise, I think this is why it's on the radar of almost of very many countries across the world. The decarbonisation goal is something, you know, we need to think about as a priority. I think the other thing, as we see, um, you know, Europe talking about carbon border adjustment measures, that creates, I think, a real threat to many of our industry. So if we can find a way to take the emissions out through the use of hydrogen, then that could be a real game changer for them as well. Because I always say it wouldn't make sense for us to put, you know, to pay 
the price of carbon to Europe when we could be doing it here to through the certification schemes and actually decarbonising our industry. But there's still a lot to be done in that, but I think, you know, that's where the opportunities are emerging. Yes, yeah. So it's more of a, a holistic system, is it, that you're saying that the um, carbon could be uh, taken out at, at source? Is that the point that you... Well, I mean, the whole thing is a systems, you know, the whole energy is a systems, you know, a very complex system. So whether you integrate it, well, here in Queensland, we're integrating renewable electricity alongside coal-fired generators, gas, you know, so there's a real mixture of things, but we do have to decarbonise. And so, I mean, carbon capture and storage is one way of doing that. That's been around for a long time, but you also need adequate storage and those sorts of things. And at the moment, in the absence of a price on carbon, it's very expensive. So renewable hydrogen that's produced through electrolysis, you know, the only byproduct is water, you know, so it's, um, yeah, well, splitting the water and, and oxygen, I should say. So, yeah. What are your views then in terms of the take-up of carbon capture and storage then? Do you think we see a, a large number of um, carbon capture projects or do you reckon that's going to be a transition to, more towards green in, in the longer term? I think from a social licence to operate, the only way it would be tolerated if it was used as a transition. I can't see that it will be there forever. I've worked on researching attitudes to carbon capture and storage for many, many years and it's sort of gone up. It's actually interesting that it's actually come back on the radar. I mean, it's been used up in Norway for enhanced oil recovery and they've stored there successfully. I'm working on a project, well, some work in the UK. I think UK is looking at it at the moment again as, as a way of sort of being able to keep produce from gas. And I know it is of interest here. The task force really at this stage is focusing on renewable hydrogen and less on CCS um, at this stage. But there are definitely projects looking at that for sure. And, you know, the early, what was it, the Otway Basin CO2 CRC stored carbon dioxide quite successfully, but they had all of the mechanisms. The HESC project in Victoria is looking at um, storing CO2 offshore on the old oil and gas and to produce hydrogen with Japan. So they're working quite closely with Japan on that one. So again, it, it will all depend on price and availability of storage and, and the whole infrastructure together. Yes, yeah. And there's people like uh, like Twiggy and Fortescue Future Industries are very much pushing the green or nothing, nothing else matters. So do you think that route of straight to green is achievable or I think uh, Twiggy's got a, uh, he's fortunate to be able to invest in projects with a long-term view without the commercials perhaps stacking up in, in the short term. I think it all depends. I know when we first started on on this, you know, working with Dr. Finkel all those years ago, 2018, I think it was, you know, we saw a shift from just only renewable to include carbon capture and storage. I think here there's, where, you know, the scale we've got to achieve, there is opportunity to build that, I suppose, and move that forward. Where CCS plays into it, I really don't know at this stage, but there are some countries that would say they wouldn't tolerate, even though if you've got a certification scheme, but the world's working on this at the moment, actually, what is the certification and, and how do you, because, you know, the argument is if you've removed all the CO2, isn't it actually then a clean hydrogen anyway? But there is some countries that would say, no, we only want to know that it comes from renewable electricity and renewable energy in the way that it's produced. So, yeah, I'm not sure how it's going to land or where it's going to play at this stage. So, yeah, we're looking at some of those those issues now, I suppose, too, in the task force. Yes, yeah. Do, do you think the countries that have got that concern 
is there concern that there might be sort of leakage in, in the long term? Is that why they're, they're moving away from that? No, I think it's more a fundamental values or ideology position that, you know, say, for example, in Germany, fossil fuels are being phased out. So therefore, uh, you know, they've got rid of all of their coal a long time, you know, over, over the years. And so therefore, why would you step back? And I think these are the sorts of discussions around some of those sorts of things. My understanding, it's been proven and, you know, we've got the Decatur project in Illinois. As I said, the Norwegians have been doing it for years and years and years, but obviously they get paid because they've got a high price on carbon. So therefore, you know, it makes sense. The CO2, CRC, you know, there's, so I think it all depends really, but around it, it's going to have to stack up economically and so forth. And the argument is if you've got large availability of land, then as long as it can coexist, I think, with agriculture and, and those sorts of things, you know, there will be, you know, we saw that with biofuels, that sort of food versus fuels discussion. Yeah, it is can be contentious anyway. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of the, the meeting in Glasgow, the COP meeting, because I think when you look at the IPCC report, the 1.5 degrees, a lot of these, you know, carbon capture and storage, direct air capture, geoengineering were all of these things that we needed at the back end. So, you know, we might be able to cut off our emissions to a certain point, but then, you know, to really be able to decarbonise, they talk about BEC, so co-firing bioenergy and so forth to get negative emissions. So, that's where we might say that it has to be needed. And I guess that's the argument of why you need to invest in the R&D to see if it can, you know, where it can stack up. And I guess that's what they're trying to do in the in the Victorian project is exactly that. Can we make it economically? Can we take the carbon out of their brown coal, which is, you know, lignite's, you know, probably one of the dirtier ones. But if, we, if they can manage to do that, then they've secured a very clean source that they could export. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. And when we talk about export, I think Australia is historically been an extraction and export country in that a uh, large proportion of our, our revenue as a, a country has come from the mining sector. So what can we extract out of the ground and export to other countries? I think with this hydrogen emergence, we've got the opportunity to not just export the molecules, but export the, the skills and the technologies as well. How much of that discussion is, is happening within the uh, the work that you're doing? So I think it's definitely aspirational. I think one of the things where we possibly haven't been competitive is because of the price of our electricity and energy and skills labour compared to some of our you know, near neighbours in the Asia Pacific. But what they're talking about now is that if we can increase the amount of energy that we generate through sort of such this rich you know, carrier like hydrogen and so forth, does that open up new opportunities for advanced manufacturing or new other ideas that perhaps then, like you say, we're not having to, you know, just move it offshore, but we actually manufacture some niche things here that could be used or could be exported. We're never going to compete on wages, I don't think, with some of those things, but some of the niche areas or the other uh, conversations around, you know, if we think about the whole supply chain, are there elements within that supply chain that could work, you know, so if we're doing large-scale wind, is there an element or part of the wind? And I think Hyazon has talked about with um, the ARC project that maybe there's something here that could be. So I think that's the value add around these different ideas. There is conversations if we think about the German-Australian alliance, you know, the stuff, there's always this look about where could we, you know, because the scale that's required 
it, it is quite new and it is going to require different skills and, and large numbers of them, I suppose, in some ways. So I guess that's sort of another opportunity in some ways. But, um, I mean, critical minerals, I think there's a lot of talk now around what opportunities that creates for manufacturing if we think about batteries and other sorts of things. The other opportunity that sort of just I think is on the horizon is the whole recycling, you know, with, with such a responsibility of closing the loop. And I know there's the PV, is it Reclaim company, but I think recycling solar panels, if we're going to get to the scale that we have to. And even once wind, you know, I can remember going to China and just seeing these old dilapidated wind turbines almost sort of falling. You know, we're going to have to find ways to address that to reduce the emissions. So... And I guess the other that's the other opportunity or the exciting thing, I think, why governments is that there's always a challenge of where do you place the, pro, the production process for hydrogen? Is it close to the ports or is it inland close to where the solar, you know, there's this trade-off of where you're going to find water and those sorts of things. But the idea that some of this could happen in regional parts of Queensland, I think is really exciting because of what that might do for some towns that are actually struggling these days with the changing nature of agriculture and so forth. Yes, yeah. And within those inland towns, and there's been a large area of Australia that has been in uh, in drought for, for extended periods. How are the challenges of water availability being tackled by the industry so far? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one. I, I think in Australia, you know, water, you know, the Great Artesian Basin is sort of like our golden treasure and so forth. So I think there'll be, there's a lot of science and tech going into the use of wastewater and recycled water as ways to do that. I mean, I also think, you know, the byproduct of some of the unconventional gas is water, you know, and that's and then treated to put back in. So there must be some opportunities there if it's not being used as well. But Again, you know, it will be different for different areas and, you know, maybe with upgrading dams and those sorts of things, there's opportunities to think about that because suddenly it has more value than perhaps it did before because, you know, and then I guess as different mines come off, their licences of water change and so forth and, you know, there's there's always this sort of changing nature of, of the operations that are going and where the water's allocated, but it's definitely an important component of it for sure. But I know a few years ago when I was visiting in China, they were actually looking at um, electrolyzers that could run off salt water. You know, imagine if you could do that, if you didn't have to actually desal, that would be quite amazing too. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've seen a couple of uh, uh, announcements recently about the advancements in that technology. That would be a, a huge development. This is the exciting thing. So we've identified that hydrogen does create this opportunity. One of the things that they're talking about is, you know, how do we scale electrolyzers? And that's something that Arena is really supporting, a bit like what we did with PV years ago. So, you know, can you build the size so that it could produce much more? And I think the world's pretty excited about those challenges too. So there's a lot of opportunity emerging. Yeah, it's huge. And the quicker we can get down the cost curve, like you spoke about the the solar industry, I think costs have come down 80 or 90% in the past 10 years. So uh, the quicker we can move down the cost curve for, for hydrogen, the quicker we can get economies of scale, uh, the more advantageous it's going to be for Australia. Just looping back, so how, how does an industry build trust with a community? How would, how would they go about building trust? And perhaps, perhaps we can talk about the LNG sector and some of the learnings that came out of that sector in Queensland? Yeah, so I, I mean, 
I think one of the things that really matters with trust is context. So what's happened before and also who you are. So is your company or industry seen to be competent um, is pretty important. Um, some early work we did with CCS was around that. And if people, um, and, and also that you act with integrity. So there was an example where a researcher um, looked at, I think it was WWF and Shell, and they were both looking at carbon capture and storage. And so if Shell came out with, well, we're doing this because it's great for the environment, um, by the way, you know, it'll allow us to continue our business, that obviously they were seen to have low integrity. But if they led with, well, economically it makes sense, and by the way, it's good for the environment, then, you know, it, they were seen to be honest and have more integrity. And when you flipped it with WWF, and interestingly, when the two teamed up, that actually increased people's trust in Shell in those instances. So it was an interesting research project. But I think to build trust, you just have to be very open and transparent about what's going on. Make sure you engage with the critical people within the community and make sure that they've got access to the information that they need and when they need it. I think what happens sometimes, and we've seen it before, like, you know, it's a fine line of when is the right time to raise it, but I guess we're seeing that's what's happening with FFI and the way that they're communicating widely and broadly right now. But within the local communities, you've got to find who are the key stakeholders. Is it could be the local chemist, it could be the local doctor or the local footy coach. They're the ones that you really need to have conversations with to make sure then that people are aware and their questions are answered. And also I say it's really important. I mean, it's hydrogen probably on par with all the politicians, but making sure the politicians have the questions answered because if someone's upset, usually they're going to ring their politician. And if the politician can sort of talk with confidence about why and how, that can really help them overcome some of those things. So what you're trying to do is allay people's fears and attenuate the risk to make them understand where the opportunities and benefits are. I think that's pretty important. And then I remember years ago doing a project in WA and this lady was complaining about the way they went onto her property and, you know, just came on in and sort of didn't announce or what have you. And she said, Peter, you live in the city. No one would just walk straight into your house. You know, so actually making, getting permission to come onto their property and so forth. And I think one of the things we found, I know from the, the coal seam gas side of things was also, you know, actually having the conversations about where do you put the infrastructure. So before it was very haphazard, now they tend to go down the fence line and work out in conjunction with the farmers where that should be. The other thing I guess that we saw in Gladstone was the cumulative impacts of multiple projects competing and that sort of was really lots of consultation and, and that sort of brought out a whole lot of fatigue for communities. So I think actually making sure that there's a systematic approach to it is really important, which I guess is why this collaboration across different industry players is is part of that. Oh, absolutely. I was just going to make the point about the collaboration. I think uh, with the LNG projects in uh, Gladstone, there was perhaps looking back the opportunity for more collaboration on those projects. And well, it's been at such an early stage, sorry, with the um, hydrogen sector, I think the the collaboration is really important and the groups like um, clustering around Australia, I think is uh, very important for SMEs to, to come together and, and share knowledge between the organisations and the groups. 
Yeah, I think absolutely. And, you know, shared infrastructure, understanding how that works, because that can bring down the costs and those sorts of things. And I mean, it really is a supply chain when we think about hydrogen production. So you've got to work out what are all the inputs and who needs to be involved and how does that work sort of thing. Um, You led the social research program of the Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute as well as working alongside, as you mentioned before, working alongside Alan Finkel, uh, who was Australia's chief scientist at the time in the development of Australia's national hydrogen strategy. So perhaps for our listeners, um, what is CCS? What what are the kind of methods of, of CCS? So carbon capture and storage is what it talks about. Now they talk a lot about carbon capture utilisation and storage. So can you actually utilise the CO2? There's a lot of work going on in that. But basically where it came about was obviously from, you know, oil, gas, coal, power stations, and also industrial processes, cement, steel, and so forth, produce large amounts of CO2 in their production. And so the probably, I don't know how many years ago now, but it's quite a long time I've been looking about, well, if you could capture the CO2 at point source and then what they do is talk about putting it into a supercritical state, so almost liquid, then you can transport it through pipelines and the idea is to store it safely away, securely in old oil and gas reservoirs, those sorts of things. So that's sort of the net idea. Sometimes people talk about capturing and storing in trees, but obviously the volumes just are never going to stack up with what we're doing. But it's also why they're so desperately trying to stop deforestation in Brazil and those sorts of things, because those large tracts are important. So that's really the um, challenge. And then, of course, getting people to understand that storing the CO2, that it's actually, you know, originally coal and gas came out of those reservoirs. You know, they are just carbon anyway. And from my understanding, it's a very dense the CO2 tends to go to the bottom and then, you know, over, you know, and it's all rocks and pores. So it's not like it's just a big cavern. It's not not a big coal. It's, you know, there's lots of, and they would only do, they're so good at understanding their geology, you know, they'd only put it where there's a good seal, a natural seal in the formations. And so it could be up to two kilometres down that they'd be thinking about storing the CO2, but only with all of the geology in place and those sorts of things. Yeah, I think that's probably the main. Yeah, so for the benefits of the listeners, Peter, do you mind giving us an overview of the different colours of hydrogen? I'll have a go for you because there's many. And I do remember having a conversation with Alan Finkel and Patrick Hartley from CSIRO on this. And we were I was sort of teasing about Joseph and his multicoloured, technicoloured <laughs> jacket because the conversation was going everywhere. So green hydrogen is sort of the, the goal, I think, produced from renewables through electrolysis of water. That's sort of where everyone is keen and no CO2 emissions. Blue hydrogen comes from fossil fuels, but it's where the CO2 is captured. So what we are just talking about with carbon capture and storage. Grey hydrogen is produced from fossil fuels and tends to use that process of steam methane reforming, but usually um, the CO2 is eventually released. Black or brown hydrogen is produced from coal and obviously depending on the coal, black in Queensland, brown down in Victoria and so forth. And there is also a turquoise hydrogen that can be extracted by using thermal splitting of methane. So, you know, there's another colour, there's purple, pink, red. I won't go into detail, but those others are probably the main ones. Yeah, fantastic. It's certainly an energy source that's got lots of opportunity, but uh, yeah, lots of challenges to overcome. And those could be technology challenges, there could be the water availability, there could be the uh, energy input availability, there could be 
jobs and skills challenges, um, cost redu- reduction, supply chain improvements and optimization. And all these things need to be considered as we move the sector forward. Do you think there's one area that's going to be, I guess, the lead domino? So I guess, and what I mean by that is the one area that if the challenge could be met, then it will make the other sectors easier to develop the sector forward. I don't think it's going to be any one area. I mean, if you think about the arena work, is that's focusing on scale of electrolyzers because obviously we know that that can bring it down. But I would also point to the social issues around competing land use, as we've talked about water and so forth. The other one we haven't really discussed is transportation. So, you know, there's just this expectation we're going to be able to transport and ship it off around the world. But that in itself uses a lot of energy in its own right and, and the way. So there's a conversation going on around the potential of ammonia and ammonia shifts and so forth. But I think there's three different ways they're investigating that, you know, or do you actually, like we do with the, with the gas, do you store it at a really sort of cold temperature, super cold, to be able to transport it that way? So I think that in itself, and this is what the... Japan projects looking at. So I think all of those that you've talked about come into play. And then for what we're thinking about within Queensland is just that the precincts, you know, the actual how do you organise that supply chain? And I think one of the challenges is what can we do to aggregate demand domestically first to then sort of help that scale build? And then it's going to be competing, you know, this idea of what's for export and what's going to be here for domestic use and how does that play out? Yes, yes. So I understand the three areas that are being considered for export transportation are, are, as you touched upon there, ammonia, liquefied hydrogen, so cooling it down to, into liquid form and then compressed hydrogen as well. So those are the three areas that have been looked at and advantages and cost considerations for each of those. What do you think is Queensland's competitive advantage in developing this industry? And do you think Queensland has got the opportunity to be a leader in, uh, in hydrogen export on a world scale? Look, I think, you know... We are in a good position proximity-wise if we think about, you know, potential trading partners, Japan, how important, and Korea and so forth. We're in a nice position there. We have really good ports. You know, so we've got Gladstone and Townsville that are, you know, already, you know, if you think about what Gladstone does. So we've got some ports that are already functioning and I think that's a really important part of, of the puzzle. We've got a lot of land, so the renewable energy zones, I think, are really also helping to bring that piece together in some ways. We've got a government that's very committed to it, just, you know, they have an interdepartmental committee that's working on the challenges and so forth. And then I guess having the task force to make sure that the policy and so forth and things like H2Q, you've got got industry that is you know, very keen and very committed to seeing this as an opportunity. And I think that's, that's you know, part of why it is an advantage for Queensland. But that said, we also, you know, it's an opportunity for Australia too. And I think that's so wherever we can, one thing that I keep advocating for is making sure we're consistent in what we're doing, that it's coordinated so that an industry can work in Queensland and also work in Tasmania or whatever. And so that we enable that, that it doesn't put barriers, unnecessary barriers, I suppose, as well. Yes, yeah. Do you mean that around the legislation and um, certification of equipment coming in? All of those sorts of things. It can be anything from, you know, 
trade workers being able to have the same certificate. They work from one to the other. I remember years ago with transport, there was issues that trucks needed to be fitted with different parts to pass through between Queensland and New South Wales, and it just seems crazy. So I think wherever we can, you know, buy into consistency to sort of create, make it easy for for industry to do well, I think is really important. What else do you think needs to happen for Queensland's hydrogen and decarbonisation ambitions to be realised? So you touched upon before about the policy changes. Is there anything else that you can sort of point a finger to to say it would be helpful if these changes were made? I think it's as things come up. So like we're seeing what's going on with certification is, is, you know, getting that consistent I think is really important. I think making sure we're working with our partner countries, you know, making sure that they're on board is something that's really important. So I think there is there. The other thing is, you know, is there opportunity for different ways of thinking about public-private partnerships to enable this? So as I talked about coordinating infrastructure and adding value in those different ways I think is important. And I think working, you know, the collaboration, governments working with industry and with academia and this is, I think, you know, that's, the, that's what creates the opportunities for new ways of thinking and new ways of operating. So I don't think there's going to be just one, but I think all of those things are important and part of the goal of the task force, I suppose, is sort of to reflect and bring different ways of thinking to provide strategic advice to those people that are responsible for, you know, developing those policies and regulations in place. Yeah, great. And what are your personal hopes and dreams then for the sector? I mean, for you personally, what does success look like? And uh, perhaps, I guess, putting it another way, looking backwards in five years from now, what would success look like for you? So I think in five years, we would want to have had some pretty good pilot projects up and running. I think that that will, you know, that we can actually demonstrate it, that we've got in place some important trade agreements with our partners like Japan and Korea, those sorts of things. That re- regulations, as I talked about, are consistent. That would be in policy. Also, that there is some production that's occurring in regional areas, as we hoped, and that they are coexisting with agriculture. So, obviously, people have done the right engagement and everyone's happy. And so, we're starting to see regions prosper start of a new export perhaps you know we're starting to see the scale and then I think you know for me that we're actually seeing the 1.5 degree is starting to be addressed because five years down the track we would hope to see that things have turned a little bit and I suppose also that you know some people are seeing new opportunities as they move from one industry to another you know that we can create those transformations for individuals across Queensland to do that. Yes yeah and we started to see that already with people moving from one industry, as you say, to the renewable and hydrogen sector. What do you see as the the jobs that would be highly sought after over the coming years? Oh, look, it's a good question. Obviously, there's a whole lot of engineering that goes on, chemical engineers, mechanical engineers. I think I heard somewhere, or maybe it was in Australian Financial Review, that there's 30 engineers being sought by FFI at the moment. But if you think about pipelines and transmissions, there's going to be a whole lot of different important areas there not to mention R&D so trades and electricians if we're actually looking at domestic uses how do we if we're going to change our houses in any way those sorts of things but also tradies working on on the pipelines and things and then also I think there's a real opportunity for people interested in communication and the social license to operate issues because you know that whole community engagement side of things is going to be really important so and not to mention people working in the policy area you know, so there's quite a few different areas, I think, that, yeah, exactly, yeah. 
I think I was looking at the other day, Mission Innovation has a goal. They Instead of talking about precincts or hubs, they talk about hydrogen valleys. And I think their goal is to have successfully 100 valleys in place operating around the world. So I think everyone's on board. You know, it's the aspirations and then it's the coordination. So there is opportunity, I think, to making sure we're in lockstep with international to, to not reinvent the wheel and, you know, thinking about Australia's point of difference, yeah. Yes, yeah. Seems like on a daily basis, the media releases that are coming out, the momentum is is building day by day. Yeah, and I you know I think it is because of this sort of decarbonisation and the opportunities. And you know we need to make some changes. So how do we do that sustainably? Conscious of your time, Peter. Uh, I guess just in closing, do you have any asks of the audience? Um, how would you like to for people to participate or you know make a change? How would you like them to? contribute and, and get involved i think it's seek out information from you know depending who you are i suppose like you know where you fit if you're someone who's working in the industry versus a lay public and so forth i mean any of the industry players you know my role as task force i'm you know really interested to engage with people to have them reach out with ideas from the point of view i think we do have to be mindful of bringing the public along working with schools and those sorts of things because obviously you know this is a long-term initiative so the children that are sort of coming through high school now will be the ones that will be responsible for a lot of this so I think and then yeah just from an industry perspective you know do it well do it well and you know make sure you sort of are mindful of the public and respectful in those sorts of ways and work together because we need to it's so important to get this right I think. Oh absolutely I think we've covered a lot of ground today and yeah certainly on that social side being genuine having that community engagement, gaining that sort of permission and, and taking the uh, the public along on the journey. Is there any other information that you like to share or how people could follow what's going on with the Andrew Liberis Academy or any other of the work that you're doing? Absolutely. I definitely um, encourage you to register at the Liberis Academy to get on our mailing list. We have the most amazing speakers. So last week we had the head of Shell, Ben Van Boarden, talk about what they're doing in as a multinational company oil and gas in sort of trying to you know getting to net zero this week we've got lima gabawi the nobel peace prize winner who's going to be talking and so any you know uq staff students alumni can register for that so definitely and and also if people are interested you know in looking for global talent then reach out or wanting to do intern or take people as interns um you know we're always looking for partnering in those different ways as well so always happy to talk about the academy and and also innovation projects we run them through an innovation project every year we hope that each of them will do a, at least one startup in their five years that they're at the academy so if there's ideas and challenges that fit within the hydrogen it's not to say you couldn't put them out to them as well yeah, great stuff. And that's all through your website, is it? If people can get more information? Yeah, if you look, just Google Liberus Academy at UQ. There's a, an email that goes to the Liberus Academy. We can, I can send that to you for that as well. And then obviously the work we do with Future Fuel CRC, that tends to be for industry. And then a lot of those reports are subsequently made available. And so, for example, the National Survey Report, I think, is being published to everyone as well. If people are interested in looking at what does the Australian public think? That report's now publicly available. Yeah, great stuff. And we'll get links to those in the show notes as well. I wish you all the best with your endeavours in the hydrogen sector. And thanks again, Peter, for your, for your time and sharing your thoughts. 
All right. It was a pleasure to be here. Hopefully some of what I said made sense. And um, yeah, look forward to hearing all the extra podcasts that you're doing as well. I'm Andy Marslin. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the hydrogen journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time. Thank you.